The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. As uh, Luke has his own version of it, and if, you, if you'll notice, there's some key things in this account very different from Matthew and Mark. And one of the most significant things missing in this account is that um, when the disciples fail in the other Gospels, they come and they ask Jesus, you know, why couldn't we do this? Luke completely skips this. Uh, and he does that to really link it to what comes next. As Jesus announces again to them uh, his impending suffering, that uh, he is going to go to the cross. It doesn't say it in those exact terms, but that's what's implied here. Uh, and again... Uh, they, they end with just total confusion, right? And it says that they don't understand what Jesus is talking about, but they are afraid to ask. And I love that line. That's what I've kind of titled my message this morning, Afraid to Ask. And the reality is that in life, there are probably a lot of questions that we are afraid to ask. Uh, can you think of some in your own life? Some things that you are just afraid to ask. I know for me, a couple that pop out for me in glaring ways. Uh, one uh, goes back to my days in high school. I was absolutely afraid, terrified at every possible level to ask a girl out on a date. Right? Terrified. In fact, never did it once. Um, how did I get married? It was a miracle. I was really opting and hoping for, you know, my parents just to arrange a marriage, which they, they didn't, but God did. Um, and I mean, I did, I, I should say, I did ask Denise out on dates after we were dating, right? But that first date, you know, no, I never did it. Um, um, you know, a lot of us guys will be accused by our wives that we're afraid to ask for directions, right? That's me. I never, you know, never will ask for directions. Um, what are behind those things? Why is it we are afraid to ask certain questions, right? Well, certainly there are, there are fears behind that that keep us stuck. And it's important to be aware of these fears. And the sad thing is that oftentimes we were so afraid to ask the questions that we're afraid to even look at the question we're afraid to ask, right? We just, we just distance ourselves from those things. And we live in this great avoidance of certain issues. And uh, the problem with that is that it will always keep us stuck and trapped somewhere. And that's what happened here with the disciples. They were stuck and trapped. And from, from here on out, it's clear that they just don't get what Jesus' mission really is. And they're, they're stuck. And they're not going to break out of that trap until uh, ultimately after Jesus dies on the cross. Uh, what are some of the fears that keep us stuck and the questions we're afraid to ask? Um, a lot of people are afraid to go to the doctor, right? They're sick. They've got problems, you know, chest pains, shooting pains down the arm, you know, every possible symptom of a heart attack. And how many guys, their wives say, you should go to the doctor. Oh, no, no, I, I'm fine, really, I'm fine. Well, why don't they want to go to the doctor and ask the simple question, what's wrong with me? Well, they fear the answer, right? Uh, they, they fear the doctor's going to say... You, you're, you're having a heart attack, and you need to go to the hospital, and you've got to stop eating fat and bacon. That would be tragic. So we don't ask the question. Um, 
Maybe uh, we are afraid to confront problems um, and to dive into the conflict that, uh, that's causing troubles with us in relationships, right? And we know, there's a, we know there's tension, we know there's a problem, but we're afraid to ask straight out, what, what's the problem here? Because right? we're afraid people are going to say, well, you're the problem. Yeah? And we have this deep, gnawing sense inside that I am the problem. And we don't want to face that. So these fears keep us stuck. And the truth is, human nature is this. Most people, I think all people, aside from the work of Christ, would much rather live in denial and remain stuck than come face to face with the reality and truth that they fear and move forward. And that's certainly what was going on with the disciples. They were stuck. And as we'll see, it's their fears that are keeping them from asking vitally important questions. And because of that, they stay stuck where they are. So how, do, how will the disciples get unstuck? How will we get unstuck? Well, we hope that's what we can learn from this passage. So let's jump in. Um, this comes off, and this, you know, this is life, this comes off of one of the most really, in many ways, mountaintop experiences for Jesus. If you remember the passage before, he's been up on the mountain uh, praying with this amazing time of communion and fellowship with God where Moses and Elijah show up. He's talking about his exodus, the cross. He's, he's discussing with them God's the unfolding of God's saving plan for all time. And uh, the disciples uh, get a glimpse of Jesus' heavenly glory. And the cloud comes down, and God the Father himself declares, This is my Son. Listen to him. Right? So certainly for Jesus, this had to be, and for the, the three uh, disciples who were with him, had to be really a cool thing, right? And if you're going to be you know, on cloud nine, <laughs> this would be it. And how often is this how it works? You go from cloud nine back to reality. Jesus comes down the mountain, and he's, in, he's confronted by, by the horrible effects of sin on this demonized boy, as well as on the just blindness of his his own students. Um, but we see in the midst of all this that Jesus never fails. Uh, Jesus is uh, never caught off guard and never unable to provide the help and healing that is needed. Uh, so the need before him, as we know, as we read, is a, uh, a boy who's being demonized, is uh, under the influence of a demon. And the specific... This is not a generic, everyday, run-of-the-mill demon possession. And because in our culture we don't really do a lot of exorcisms and it's not part of our culture, we only have one word for this, and it's, well, you're demon-possessed. But in their language, because this was a part of their everyday life, there are different ways to describe demon possession. And this one uses language that is, very, that, that is uh, describing epilepsy. Okay, it's, 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 it's not that it's just physical, it is spiritual, but the symptoms would be what we would call modern-day epilepsy. The, man, the boy is taken with these violent seizures where he's thrown to the ground, foaming, um, chomping his tongue, shaking violently, and screaming out with just these horrible, horrific screams. Uh, and the father describes it. He, said, um, he says, I beg you to look at my son. Please take a look at my son, my only son. Uh, and behold, the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. And it says, he uses these words, he says, and it shatters him. It shatters him. It's literally a horrible picture of the torment 
that this poor young boy is in, and it just will not leave him alone. And repeatedly, this boy's life, day after day, is, is being shattered by this demon. Um, and while Jesus doesn't ever seem to be going out of the way looking for problems, every time a need comes before him, every single time, somebody comes to Jesus with a need, and they say to him, Lord, please help me. Every single time, Jesus stops, and he ministers to that person. And this case is no different. Um, and and he, 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 demonstrates that he demonstrates that he has power to heal. Uh, and it says that, uh, in verse 40, he says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And he said, Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him down again and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the spirit. It was that simple, that easy. Jesus rebuked the spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Um, it, it had been hard for the disciples. In fact, they couldn't do it. Uh, there's lots of explanations for why. We don't know. But it's, it's, it's known that uh, in that day, this particular type of demon possession that had these epileptic symptoms was considered to be the hardest of all demons. Now, I don't know how this works. I mean, a demon is a demon, right? Why would this one be harder than any others? But in their culture, they had categorized it that way, and they had said, this is the hardest, right? Um, and we don't know why the disciples were so faithless in this account, but maybe they had believed popular legend, popular rumor, and they felt, you know, we've been casting out demons, and, and Jesus had given them power and authority to do that. He had sent the 12 out, if you remember, and they had done it. They had been casting out demons. They had been healing people. They had been proclaiming the good news as God uh, commanded. And all of a sudden, they couldn't do it. Maybe they believed what people said. Oh, this one's too hard, right? Um, whatever the reason, it's clear that their faith was inadequate. And it could be that this, power, this demon was more powerful. It could be that this demon uh, had a fiercer grip on this young life. Whatever the case, their faith was inadequate. But a common pattern throughout the book of Luke is that Jesus easily does these miracles, right? He calmed the sea in a word. He cast out the legion of demons with a rebuke. He feeds the 5,000 with no effort. And in this case, the same thing. Jesus does not labor. He doesn't toil. He doesn't agonize. He's not sweating, you know, in agony. He simply speaks a word, and the demon flees, and the boy is perfectly restored. Uh, he is healed. Uh, the word means he is returned to wholeness. Right? In every way, he is, once again, normal. Um, and, and in this picture, it really is a picture of what Jesus' ministry was about. It is, in many ways, a model for ministry. Uh, and the model goes like this. Uh, we, we're out in the world, and needs come before us, and people bring to us their needs. They're struggling with sin. They're struggling with disease. They're struggling with the consequences and effects of sin. Uh, and when they come to us, uh, Jesus expected his disciples to be able to minister to them, to meet that need and to restore them to wholeness. And we know Jesus was disappointed because of his criticism of their failure, right? How long do I have to put up with you? Right? You faithless and perverted generation. 
Okay, now if you're one of Jesus' disciples, this is not going to make your day, right? This is not well done, thou good and faithful servant. This is like, ouch, ouch, right? Jesus expected them to restore this boy because that's what his ministry was. That is what he had commissioned and empowered them to do. And I love at the end of this account, it's easy to overlook this, but after the boy's healed, it says, Jesus did what? He returned him to his father. And there's a sense in which, for the first time in a very long time, this father really had his son back. The real son. The son that he loved and cared about and could have a relationship with. Okay, for the first time in a long time, that relationship was restored, and he really did have his only son back. And isn't that a great picture of ministry? What we are to be about, what God has commissioned and called us to do, is to take broken, hurting people, and not in our own power and our own strength, but through Christ and through what he has done, to bring healing into their life, uh, to deal with the sin and its consequences in their life, so that we can do what? We can return them to their heavenly Father. We can restore them to right relationship with the Father. And that's what ministry is. It's not just fixing people's sin problem, but it's restoring them to uh, their Father who has lost them so that they can once again be rightfully uh, His children. Uh, so that's, that's the model for ministry. And Jesus expected them to do this. And He expects us to do this. It's a great picture for what our life and ministry should be about. We should be bringing people to a restored relationship with the Father and to finding finding healing, restoration for their broken lives in Christ. Uh, We'll come back to this in a minute, but um, let's read on. It says, uh, and all the crowd, all there, were astonished at the majesty of God. So they see this miracle. This miracle that the disciples could not do and Jesus does so easily. And they really are blown away. The, the word could have the meaning they're, they're kind of knocked out of their senses, right? They're astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Um, what is this about? Well, Jesus is really saying to them, look, don't be fooled, right? Looks can be deceiving. Be, be, be careful what you are thinking. So what were the disciples thinking? Well, this was, this was to them success, right? Jesus is doing all these miracles, and the phrase here that they were astonished at all Jesus was doing would refer not just to this miracle, but really to all that Jesus has been doing. And Jesus has been doing some pretty amazing stuff, and the crowds have been amazed at, at all of it. And they are, they are struck with the majesty of God. But it's clear, and we know, that this was not the awe that led to faith. For some, perhaps, but um, the crowd and the people throughout Israel uh, did not get who Jesus was any more than the, the twelve, right? And they misunderstand who Jesus is, and they're awed and impressed. But Jesus says it's, it's a false sense of security. It is an illusion. Don't be deceived. But, but here's the problem. The, 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 the disciples like this illusion. It may not be real, but it's cool, right? I mean, this is what everybody dreams of. Your team is winning, right? Uh, you are 
popular. People love you and they love what you're doing, right? Even though they don't understand, a minor problem, but they like you. And you're growing and you're successful and you're making the headlines and you're getting good publicity, right? The disciples like this. Illusion of it as it might be, they liked it, right? Because this is kind of a, living out a dream, writing out this wave of success and glory and fame. Um, if you're going to live in denial, uh, it's great to create a lie that you like. And that's exactly where the disciples were, right? This was good stuff. And uh, they liked it. They liked the fame. They liked uh, the glory. They liked being favored. But Jesus says to them, listen carefully. Pay close attention. Hear my words. They are going to kill me. Right? They... Very soon, the Son of Man will be handed over to the hands of men. Right? And coming on, this is a second disclosure like this, and coming on the heels of his previous one, Jesus made it clear they are going to reject me, they are going to kill me, and after three days I will rise again. Um, Jesus says this is the truth. This is the reality that you need to be aware of. Uh, what you see before you is not real, right? Because Jesus saw through all that, and he saw the heart of men, and he knew that that crowd that was so easily awed uh, was not embracing him as Lord and King. And very soon they would be swayed in a different direction, and they would reject him. And they would cry out for his crucifixion. And so it says in verse 45, but they did not understand this saying. They did not understand it. And it was, in fact, concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Um, there's nothing hard about that saying. The Son of Man will be handed over to his enemies. Okay, There's nothing difficult about that. Um, and by the way, uh, who was handing Jesus over? Well, it was not, you know, certainly uh, Judas would betray him. Certainly Peter would deny him. Eventually all the disciples would abandon him. But ultimately, who handed Jesus over? Well, it was God the Father. Right? God the Father allowed it, sent him for this very purpose, right? Um, and, but they couldn't get this, right? And so we've got to go back to the original problem. You know, they were afraid to ask, why were they so afraid? Why was this so hard for them? And, and the reality is, it wasn't that they were so dense that they couldn't understand these simple words, okay? The words are plain and simple, and they, they understood what Jesus said. They couldn't grasp what it meant, right? So uh, they understood that Jesus was saying, you know, I'm going to be rejected and suffer. They got that. What they, what they couldn't understand is how that could apply to their Messiah. How can a, a God who's so successful, so clearly, as the crowd affirmed, so clearly bestowed with the power of God, how could someone like this fail and be rejected? Right? They could not reconcile this with their theology. It was confusing to them. Um, and there's really two issues here. 
the first problem or issue, um, as we look at why they were, well, you know, back up. Why were they afraid to ask? Well, we, we could be, and some would say it was because they were proud, right? So for every guy who's afraid to ask directions, why are we afraid to ask directions? We're too proud, right? We're too proud to admit we're lost. Uh, and so when our wives tell us we're lost, we say, no, I know where I'm going. I know where I am. It's not quite sure how to get where I need to be, right? Uh, we're proud. Some would say that the disciples were afraid to ask because they didn't want to look stupid because of their pride. But the reality is that uh, oftentimes the disciples ask questions. In fact, in the other accounts of the Gospels, the, the disciples actually asked Jesus, why did we fail in healing the, the, this boy, right? So I don't think it's pride. I don't think the disciples were afraid to ask questions. It was just certain kinds, a certain class of questions they were afraid to ask. Uh, and this was in that class, right? Um, and at the root of it is, um, is, is denial, right? So two issues. The first one is really why, uh, why for this kind of question were they afraid to ask? Um, and, and really it is, it is a form of denial. And at the root of every denial is fear of the truth, a fear of the reality that this answer will bring, right? So in our own lives, why, why do we not want to go to the doctor, right? Well, we, because we fear the diagnosis. You have cancer. You have three weeks to live. Uh, you have uh, had a massive heart attack, and it's going to require a change in your life, right? We don't want to hear that, so we, we want to hold on to the illusion. So we live in denial, of a reality that's right there in front of us, but we don't want to look at or encounter. I think that's what's going on here with the disciples, right? They like, they like the show the way it's going now. They like the success. They like the fame. They like, you know, that they're winning. What Jesus is suggesting is something very, very different. A reality where he's going to be rejected, where all of Israel is going to hate him and reject him and kill him, right? That's just something they cannot accept. And so they instead adopt denial. Uh, we don't know what Jesus is talking about. Right? Uh, maybe you've experienced this denial firsthand. And it's something that is hardwired into us. And in some ways it's a gift from God to protect us from horrible things. But it's also a curse because it keeps us oftentimes from dealing with reality. When we're not dealing with a reality, we're not walking in truth, and, and it will always cost us. Uh, one of my most painful experiences of this kind of denial, uh, a, a very dear friend of mine was killed in a car accident a long, long time ago. And uh, I was at the time on a volunteer to fire, fire department and was called to the scene and actually extricated he and his wife from the car. Um, but this is how denial works. Uh, it was a horrible, horrible car accident. And uh, we had to take the car apart, got them both out. Uh, she lived, but barely. He died. So I am, I am face-to-face -face with both of them, right? I don't recognize either one of them, right? After the accident, I, uh, we're cleaning up, and I find the, the car registration book, and I open the car registration book to see whose car, because that's part of, you know, identifying the victims. And I read their names and their address, which is, we lived at this camp, so it was the same address as my address, Right? I did not see their names, right? 
It's like, well, how funny, and this is what I thought. I thought, well, how funny that these people have the same name as my friends, right? That's denial. That is denial. And it's because the horror of what was before me was so great, I could not see it, right? And, uh, you know, it took a while for the reality of that to all sink in. And that's denial, right? And the reality is that is a condition that every single human being lives in. Denial. Well, what are we in denial of? Well, let's go to the second issue. So first issue in this why they're afraid to ask is, is the fear behind it, the denial. Um, uh, the second thing is, um, you know, what does this phrase mean? It says it was concealed from them. Right? It was concealed from them. Um, literally, seeing what Jesus was saying was hidden from them so they couldn't see it. Well, there's a couple, there's a debate over what that means. And there's two, there are basically two options. One is that God concealed it from them. So God had blinded their eyes, and, and God himself did not allow them to see and understand what Jesus was saying. Uh, the other option would be that it was just their own blindness because of sin. Because of uh, sin and sinfulness in their life and their own, the way our fallen nature is, they couldn't see it. Uh, I'll let you pick. The reality is whichever way doesn't matter because the, the reality is either way they were incapable of seeing the truth. Right? They were absolutely unable to grasp God's plan in Christ. And they would not accept the reality that was before them. And I think what it means is that part of human nature is for us to live life largely in denial of the truth. Well, why is that? Why would we, why would we ought to live um, hiding from and unable to grasp and see the truth? Well, because this is the truth. The truth is that we are desperately lost in sin and we are under God's wrath and judgment, and we are doomed to destruction. Right? That's the truth. The reality is that what they had just seen in this young boy who was demonized uh, and being shattered by this demon, that is the future, and that is the life of every person apart from Christ. Right? That's the reality. We are being tormented and will ultimately be shattered by the sin and evil that so grips us, right? Uh, and no human being in and of themselves has the power or strength or capacity to face that reality. So instead, we live in a grand illusion, right, that everybody goes to heaven, that God loves us, that basically I'm a good person, and when, when it all sorts out in the end, it's going to work out and be okay, right? Because that's what we want to believe. Because we cannot face the truth. Right? So how do we break through that powerful force called denial? How do we break its grip on us so that we can face the truth? Um, well, let's back up a little bit to answer that. And notice that in the, in the middle of this passage, Jesus is not afraid to ask questions and even hard questions. Uh, and Jesus, being the perfect example, uh, never flinches. He does not live in denial. He's constantly living in face of the truth. Uh, and notice what he asks. He says, 
Uh, verse 40, uh, um, the man, the father, says to Jesus, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, <laughs> again, this is painful to read, right? Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? It's one of the rare moments in Scripture where Jesus is clearly frustrated. <laughs> clearly frustrated. And uh, Jesus' patience is being tested to the limit with the disciples. He's been teaching them. He's been training them. He's empowered them. He's sent them out. And they, they should be able to do this. And Jesus is just frustrated that they're not getting it, right? Uh, by the way, uh, it's important to see that Jesus is perfect. He does not sin. It doesn't mean that he's immune to all this stuff, right? He does not lose his patience, but it gets really close, right? He's getting pushed to the limit. He doesn't sin in it, right? He's not, he's not angry at them. But certainly his patience is being stretched very thin. And he's starting to feel the frustration and irritation of it, right? Um, and unlike what is often true of us, at the root of his frustration is not selfishness. Okay, he's not uh, frustrated because he's tired of telling them this over and over again. Or because it's reflecting badly on him as a teacher, which it does, by the way. <laughs> like Jesus, you know, your disciples are a mess. Can't you do better? Right? It's making him look bad. But that's not at the root of his frustration either. What's at the root of his frustration? Well, he sees this poor boy being tormented by evil and in compassion, it breaks his heart. How long? How long do we have to keep being battered by sin and evil and wickedness? How long will the evil one keep beating us up until you guys get this? It was not his selfishness that motivated his impatience. It was his compassion. How long before we overcome this and we conquer sin and death and evil? Um. And he, he says two really harsh things about them. Uh, you know, what is wrong with these people? And he specifically says, not just this 12, he doesn't say, how long do I have to put up with you 12? He says, how long do I have to put up with what? This generation. So he casts all the people, the whole crowd, the disciples, everyone into this group. And what did he mean by that, by this generation? Well, clearly, he's saying here, how long do I have to deal with this generation who's living B.C.? Not before Christ, but before the cross. Right? Before the cross. Because the brokenness and trap that they are in is one that will not be broken until Jesus goes to the cross. And he says two things about them. He says, first of all, they have no faith. He says, you faithless generation. Right? You cannot believe and trust God. Uh, and that's why you are opting for an illusion. Right? You will not trust in God's purpose and plan. Secondly, he calls them uh, corrupted or twisted or perverted, some translations say. The word literally means to distort or turn aside, to oppose or plot against the saving purposes and plans of God, to turn aside from the right path. He says, look, you are a people who from the very beginning to end do not get it because you're opposed to God's plan. You're opposed to God's purpose. And the verb here uh, means that it's a continual state of being for them. Before Christ, 
you're continually in a state of opposition to God's purpose and plan. By our very nature, we oppose what God is trying to do. And the truth is concealed from them because by nature, we are off track. We are off course. We are headed in the wrong direction. I think what Jesus is saying is here is in this generation, among this people, among even his own disciples, it was their very nature to, to lie to themselves and live in denial. Okay? They don't have a choice. It is the nature of their being. And so there's no human being alive who, through their own intellect, their own gifts, their own understanding, gets God. Who can face the truth and say, oh yeah, I am a sinner. I'm destined for eternal destruction, but praise God, he has saved me. Right? We, we're incapable of it because we uh, are driven by fear to live in denial of the truth. And we live in this illusion uh, that's much easier to swallow. Well, Jesus' question is, so that's kind of unpacking his question, but the real question is still there, how long? How long? Now, it's a rhetorical question, and I don't know that Jesus is asking them. I don't think he expected an answer. Uh, maybe he was asking God the Father, God, how long, right? How long? Please help me out here. Um, it's a rhetorical question that may not have expected an answer. But it is a good question, right? To, to what extent was Jesus required to endure? How far was God asking Jesus to put up with this, to bear with this? How long, how far, to what extent? Well, we know the answer. And Jesus knew the answer, right? God was asking him to bear it all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. Uh, Hebrews 12, 2 and 3 says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Same word, bore up the, cr the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Uh, Philippians says this, Have this mind among you which is, in, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, how far? To the point of death, even death on the cross, right? Jesus asked this question, and maybe he didn't intend an answer, but that's the answer. And it's an answer that Jesus knew and accepted. It was a reality that was every bit as horrible as what the disciples were avoiding. Because Jesus is saying here, I am going to endure everything that you were afraid to. I am going to endure the full punishment of your sin. I am going to take on the full horror of what you dread in my death so that you can have life. Right? But rather than denying it or avoiding it or pretending it's not there, Jesus, as we'll see later in, in Luke, sets his face toward it. Right? He faces that truth and that reality because he knows that it's only through that that they will ever get it. Right? Only through that that they will ever get it. Uh, it ends at the cross. 
Um, and Jesus knew that man would live in denial as long as the horror of judgment was in their face. So how does the cross help? How does the cross solve our problem? Well, it's easy. Because Jesus took all the horror of what we fear on himself. So for us, there is never anything else to fear. Through, through the cross, through Christ, the, the thing that we dread is gone. Right? And he gives us life and peace. He restores and he returns us to the Father to be rightly related to him. And honestly... Through Christ, there's now never anything for us to really be afraid of. Okay, do you believe that? Let me say it again. There's absolutely nothing in life for us ever to really be afraid of. Do you have to be afraid of the diagnosis of cancer? Well, you don't have to like it, right? I'm not saying you should go, yay. But do you have to be afraid of it? No. Because... The cross has taken away the sting of death. And if it's your road to death, it's, it's, it's an easy path because God has taken the curse out of it, right? There's nothing that we ever need to fear anymore. Um, I love Jesus in verse 44. It says, um, it says mark my words, right? How, that's how we would say it in English, in English. Translation, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Uh, Jesus is begging his disciples to get this. Please, he says, get this. Right? Just up on the mountain, when the cloud came down and appeared, and God said, this is my son, what did he say? Listen. Would you just listen, right? Jesus comes down the mountain, he says the same thing as his disciples. Please just listen. And, of course, they couldn't because it wasn't until the cross and the resurrection that that fear could be removed away and they could face the reality, the new reality that Christ created for them. So the cure to our denial is absolutely the cross. It is absolutely the cross to trust that Jesus has conquered everything in the death of of Jesus. And there really is nothing left for us to be afraid of. That's the power of the gospel. So let's think about this in our own life uh, as we close. Uh, What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What are the things lurking in your life that are so deep, so down there, so afraid of that you don't even want to think about thinking about it, right? You don't even want to think about asking the question. And it's that thing that you just always keep as far away from you as possible. Uh, the reality is Jesus has taken away everything to be afraid of, but those patterns are still deeply ingrained in us. And we are people who, by nature, like to live in denial. And so we need to be aware of that. Chances are a good chunk of your life is probably a lie, an illusion, because you're not, you know, we're not facing the truth because there's fears that are blinding us. Uh, so what are they? Um, you know, if, you, if you're a husband, uh, you know, maybe your fear is the state of your marriage. And I, I, I hear this story often when I was counseling. Uh, this, this would happen often. Guys would come into my office who had been married 30, 40 years, right? And they come to me and they say, you know, my wife is filing for a divorce. 
And I just don't understand because we had such a perfect marriage. I'm like, okay, here's a guy living in major denial. Because your wife's not divorcing you because she thought the marriage was perfect, right? You're just clueless, right? And you just, you know, come to face with the truth, right? Husbands, uh, are you fearful of what your wife would say if you asked her how your marriage was? Wives, and same thing, you know, how many wives have been married 15, 20, 30 years and they discovered that their husband is in an affair with another woman. And they're blown away and they say, but we had such a great relationship. Well, you may have been having a great relationship, but apparently he wasn't, right? But you're living in this illusion that's not real, right? Parents. Uh, again, how many parents are shocked that their godly, saintly, perfect high school or college student is living a life of sin, right? And they're horrified. My kids always just love God. They've been, like, sinless, like they can walk on water. I just can't believe this, right? Here's some people living in denial, right? Are you willing to face the truth about your kids and their spiritual condition, right? Or do you need to live in the illusion that there's something they're not, right? Is that a fear that you deal with? Leaders. Um, you know, how many leaders are shocked to find that their flock and their staff and their followers really don't like or trust them? You know, right? Worse yet, what is there in your own life that you are clueless to, Right? where you feel you are strong and godly and invincible, but out of the blue you find yourself falling into some horrible moral failure or addiction or sin, and you do things that just shock you that you could do them. Because you really honestly believe this was beyond you. Right? You're living in denial. You're not facing the truth about who you are. Um, behind all those things is fear. Right? The thing that keeps us from asking the questions and facing the reality is some fear. Uh, and that fear is an evidence of our lack of faith in what God has done through the cross and what he can do to resolve the problem. Right? Jesus said, you faithless generation who cannot grasp God's plan. But the cure is to have faith and understand the power of the cross to deal with what you fear. So if you fear failure or rejection or a bad reputation, or disappointment, or suffering, or death and destruction. The cure to those things is in what God can do through the power of the cross. And the only way to deal with that is to embrace the truth and the reality so that God's grace and power can come in to deal with that and can, um, by faith, bring healing, right? Bring health, um, it's a great song, you know, victory in Jesus. The cross has provided for us victory. And that's the reality we live in. And the, the, the truth is now we live in a reality that's almost too good to be true. Maybe we're in denial because we're afraid to believe it. But the truth is there is that power in the cross. And Jesus expected his disciples to exercise that power over that boy. And it was their lack of faith that was failure. 
So what does that look like in our life? Um, what are the questions you have been afraid to ask? Uh, here's just three, three examples, and then we'll, uh, I'll let you contemplate on your own. But first, uh, can you ask the question, how is my marriage? What we fear hearing is from our mate, well, I just don't love you anymore, and I don't want to be with you. Right? That's what we fear. Um, but the thing is, if that's the reality, you need to know it. You, know, you need to find that out. Because until you find that out and can seek the power of the cross to bring forgiveness and healing into your relationship, the, the power of the cross gives us the power to say, yes, I am a failure. And I am sinful. And it's only through the redeeming work of Christ that I can be made into something different. And I need grace and forgiveness. Uh, we, don't, we don't ask that question so we can solve all the problems, but to find the healing power of Christ to heal, fix it. Um, maybe it's this question for parents. Are you afraid to ask your kids, how is your walk with God? And what we fear is the answer from our kids saying, well, I don't have one. I don't love God, and I don't want to be a Christian. Can you deal with that answer? And again, the temptation is what we want to do is we want to force our kids to believe. Trust me, that doesn't work very well. Faith is an individual choice. You cannot make your kids believe. Can you trust the power of the cross with your kid's life apart from your control? So can you have an honest conversation with your kids that says, how are you spiritually? And, and except for them to say, well, not very good. I don't like God. And I think he's, I think he's unfair. And I don't understand him. Okay? And not go overboard, you know, trying to argue your kid and convince your kid into the truth. I'll tell you the truth, honestly. I've talked to a lot of high school kids of missionaries and full-time ministry workers, and the kids tell me, I'm afraid to talk to my parents about my doubts. And our fears as parents are crippling us in bringing Christ in a healthy, strong way to our kids. Um, It's a great opportunity to learn patience (laughs) and to learn how to pray for our children. Uh, as leaders, you know, can we ask that question? How am I doing as a leader? Of course, we fear, you know, well, you're a failure. You're horrible. You don't have a clue what you're doing, right? The cross is the answer for those things. The work of Christ and his grace and his forgiveness. In our own life, are we able to ask the question, what kind of a person am I? If you strip away what I pretend to be on the outside, what kind of a person am I deep inside? And we're afraid to hear, you're a wretch. You're horrible. You are hateful. You are addicted to all kinds of evil things. But until, if that's the truth, we need to embrace that truth and find the release and power of the cross to deliver us. Right? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.